All right, everybody, it's good to be with you today. Glad you're here. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We are continuing through um, our look at the book of 1 Peter, where Peter is writing this group of persecuted Christians, and he's encouraging them in their faith. And, and here's what Peter has done so far, because we took a couple weeks off over spring break. But what Peter's done so far, and by the way, if you want to turn, if, uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll start in verse 13. But what Peter's done in the first 12 verses of the letter thus far is talk about and describe basically how unbelievable our salvation is. He, he's reminding them and us um, about our salvation in Jesus Christ. And he's reminded that God is reminding us that God has been at work in our salvation before the foundation of the world. He, he reminds them and us that, that us having a genuine faith in Jesus that stands the test of trials in our lives is more valuable than gold because it's going to result in praise and honor and glory in the day that Jesus Christ comes back. He's reminded us that one of the reasons that our salvation in Christ is so unbelievable, it's so amazing, is that the prophets of the Old Testament long to see what we've got, gotten to see, and they long to experience what we've gotten to experience, but they never got to. That one of the reasons that our salvation in Jesus is so amazing is that we get to experience the grace of God, which the angels long to experience, but they never will. And so for the first 12 verses, he's just reminding us, look, the fact that you're saved is unfathomable. It's unbelievable. It's so incredible. And then in verse 13, what he does is he starts changing his language. After 12 verses of saying, this is how incredible your salvation is, this is what your salvation is, in verse 13, he begins to speak in the imperative. And what I mean by that is this, is that he starts describing what it is that you and I are supposed to do in response to the fact that we've received this incredible salvation. He reminds us that although um, we are free from condemnation in Christ Jesus, that we are not free from obligation in Christ Jesus. It's like, the, it's like the line in the song, the old hymn, um, Come Thy Fount, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. That's what Peter starts doing in verse 13, is he kind of turns and looks at the congregation, looks at the church, looks at us, and says, this is now what you and I are to go out the doors and do in light of the amazing grace of God that we have received. Now, I think this is a, an entirely um, plausible request of the scripture. I think at the end of the day that what Peter is doing is as he turns toward the imperative and says, now this is what you and I need to go do, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And think about this, that when somebody dies for you, that if somebody were to actually lay down their life for you, which Jesus Christ has done, it makes all the sense in the world to then ask the question, okay, Lord, you laid down your life for me. You died for me. What is it now that you want me to do? How now do you want me to live my life in light of your sacrifice? And I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I thought about a, an older movie 
which I want to ask for forgiveness for using this illustration because I, I literally just read an article one week ago that talked about how millennials hate when pastors use uh, movie illustrations that came out before they were born. But this is all I got, and so I, I apologize. But it's from a movie called Saving Private Ryan that came out back in the day when um, that either you weren't born or you were just born and your mom wouldn't let you watch it. And so it's about this, um, it's about World War II, and there's this guy who, who fought in World War II, but he had three brothers that died also in World War II, and so the U.S. government sent this uh, company of army rangers to go find this guy because they were like, this guy's mom can't handle losing all four sons. And so this army rangers go in the behind enemy lines to find Private Ryan, and they find him, and they bring him back, but in the process of, of saving Private Ryan, like most of these guys end up giving up their lives in order to save Private Ryan. At the end of the movie, you see this Private Ryan guy, and he's old. And he's, you know, you, you've realized that he's lived his entire life. He's got his wife with him. He's got his kids with him. He's got his grandchildren with him. And they come to the grave of the captain of these army rangers that died so that he could live. And then when he sees this guy's gravestone and he reads his name, he falls on the ground and he starts crying. And his wife and his kids and his grandkids run over to him and he looks up at his wife and he, he asks her this question tears coming down his face. He says, am I a good man? Am I a good man? And she looks at him and she says, yes, of course you're a good man. And he looks at her again and he asks, have, have I lived a good life? And she said, yes, you've lived a good life. And you, you wonder why is he asking those questions in that moment? <clears throat> and I think this is what happened is I think it hit the old man as he's standing there in front of the grave of, of the guy that, that gave up 50 years of his life so that he could have 50 more years of life. I, th I think it, it hit the old guy that the, that the man that was laying in the ground gave up the opportunity to be married and gave up the opportunity to have children and gave up the opportunity to have grandchildren so that he could get married and have children and have grandchildren. And the question that came welling up in his heart, the, the question that came screaming out of his soul is, is am I a good man? Have I lived a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that this guy made so that I could live? And church, that's exactly what Peter's doing. That's why he begins to turn in the imperative in verse 13 is he's reminding us, look, you had a savior that came to this earth and died for you. You had a savior that shed his blood so that you can, you can have life, not just 50 more years of life, but that you can have eternal life. And so now, more than ever, should we not begin to ask the question of ourselves, are we living a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that he gave to us? Now, let's look at verse 13. We actually looked at verse 13 a couple of weeks ago, but I wanna read it again because that kind of gives us the context. Again, first 12 verses, talking about salvation, verse 13, he starts off and he says, therefore, okay, in light of everything we know about our salvation, therefore, here's what we do now. <clears throat> he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, <clears throat> fix your hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Verse 14 and 15 is where we'll camp out today. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One that called you, you are to be holy yourselves 
in all your behavior. Let me read it one more time, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Peter says, you wanna know what our response should be? In light of the reality that we have been given this unbelievable salvation in Christ, this is it, that you and I are to be holy in all our behavior. Now, I wanna talk about the word holy for a second because holy is a word that's kind of a church word, I've I've become to realize. I I, I realized as I was preparing for the sermon that I can't remember the last time that I heard the word holy outside of the church used in a positive light. Outside of the church, outside of preaching, outside of singing worship songs, you hear people say, well, somebody is holier than thou, or you hear them say it in the terms of like, a bad word, you know, holy whatever, an explicative, but very rarely do you hear this word or this concept of holiness spoken about in a positive light. And so if you're kind of new to church or if, or if you're new to the Christianity thing, this is what holy means. You see it a lot in the Bible. The word holy means to be set apart. And not just set apart, but it means to be set apart for a singular purpose. If something is holy, it means it's not for common use, but that it's been set apart and it has a singular purpose, specifically here, talking about glorifying God. And I was thinking about um, like a modern illustration of this because I could have gone back in the Old Testament and talked about how the the utensils and the tabernacle were, were holy, that they set them aside just for the purpose of sacrificing animals. I thought, I'll think of something more modern. So I thought about it in a, about the NFL. So let's talk about football for a second. And so in the NFL, I learned this from a man, Colt McCoy. I, I texted him and just made sure I got my numbers right. But in the NFL, if you go to a pregame, In the NFL, you'll see something. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of footballs being thrown around. Quarterbacks are throwing to receivers. Running backs are doing their pitch groups. They're they're working on getting their pitches. You see the punters punting over and over and over again. You see the kickers kicking field goals from 15, 20, 30, 35 yards. And so there's all these footballs being used. But if you look over on the sidelines, you'll notice something. That every time laying on the sidelines there, there'll be a row of 12 footballs. And there'll be oftentimes a referee that's standing there that's guarding these 12 footballs. And here's the deal. You can't grab one of those footballs and start throwing it. You can't pick up one of those footballs and and spin it on the ground. You can't grab one and work on your punting or kicking skills. Why? Because those footballs have been set apart for a singular purpose. And the singular purpose that those 12 footballs have been laid out for is that those are considered the game balls. They're they're the game balls. They're only used during the game. They take them one by one, and you can't practice with them. You can only put them on the field when the game begins. And so to use a very biblical term for those 12 game balls, you could say that those footballs are holy. They're set apart for a singular purpose. You don't touch them unless you're playing, unless you're Tom Brady, and then you take some air out. But that's a joke for another day. (coughs) And um, so anyway, they're holy. And so Peter... Peter, when he's, when he's talking about, okay, what should our behavior be after our salvation? What, what should our lives look like in response to our salvation? The thing that he describes, he says, we are to be holy. We're to be holy. That our lives are to be set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God. Now, listen, when you, when you start getting into this, um, and you really look at the language, 
you realize that there is a pretty strong significance to his language. All right, let's read this again. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who's called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And as I read that, and as I read that, one of the things that I realized is that there, there's a word in that sentence that gives me some trouble, and it's the word all. Um, the word all is an intense word, amen? Be holy in all your behavior. The word all is kind of an all-encompassing kind of word. Peter says that we're not supposed to be holy in parts of our lives, but since we've been saved, since we're Christians, now we are to set apart the entirety of our lives for the singular purpose of, of worshiping him. That means that if you're a believer here today, if you're a Christian, that means that stuff like your mouth ought to be holy. See, we grow up and we, we don't say bad words because we're not supposed to say bad words. And, and, and I don't think we're taught enough to go, hey, your language, you, you, you have pure language, not because words are bad, but because your language as a believer is to be set apart and different for the singular purpose of glorifying God. It, it means things like that when you're a young man or young, a woman and you're Christian and you're in a dating relationship, that kind of step one here is that you're gonna look at that dating relationship first and foremost as a, as a believer is holy. It's set apart, even that dating relationship is set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God. It ought to change the way that you interact with each other physically. It changes the way you talk to each other. It changes the way, you know, when and where you spend time together. Why? Because young men and young women of God are to be holy, to be set apart for the purpose of glorifying God. It changes your marriage. Your, your marriage as, as believers is different than the world. You don't get married primarily to fulfill your own needs. You get married primarily to glorify God because we're to be holy in all our behavior. It changes the way you talk to each other. It changes the way you deal with one another in conflict. It changes how quickly you forgive one another because your marriage is to be set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God. It changes the way as, as believers you look at money. The fact that you are holy and that all our behaviors be holy, it changes the way we spend money. It changes the way that we look at kingdom generosity. Why? Because we are to be set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God in everything that we do. And I could just go on and on and on. And I could give you example after example after example of how we should do that and why we should do it, but the answer is simple. The reason I could give you all these examples on how we're to be holy is because of that pesky little word, All. That's in the sentence. The Bible says that the response of this unbelievable salvation is that we set all of our lives aside and say, God, this is yours. You can have it. Now, if you're anything like me, um, when you hear that word or whether when you see that word all, that you're supposed to be wholly set apart for the glory of the Lord in all your behavior, you start to get a little uncomfortable. And, and one, of the, one of the first times that I became aware of just how intense that word all was is when I was a little kid. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and we, you know, we had the choir and we had the, the robes and we used to sing this hymn called I Surrender All. Anybody grow up singing I Surrender All? A few of us, it's like, y'all remember this? I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed savior, I surrender all. All right, and when I was sitting there as a little kid, and 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 I kind of was aware 
of my life. And I was a believer at this point, but I was kind of aware that I wasn't like fully committed at this point to Jesus. I would sing that song and I'd start feeling guilty. And I'd realize that probably what I should have sang is not I surrender all, but I probably should have sang more accurately, I surrender some, right? <laughs> because I was, I was surrendering some parts of my life to Jesus, but I don't know that you could have said I was surrendering all parts of my life. And then, and then I would do something like I'd go to summer camp and I'd get fired up for Jesus and I'd get a bunch of stuff right and I'd come home and we'd sing that song, but what I probably should have sang is not I surrender all, but I surrender most. Because there were times in my life where I was surrendering most of my life to Christ, but I don't know if I, you could say that I was surrendering all. And then there were times like when I went to college, I got on fire for Jesus. You ever heard that phrase? I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus. I got sold out for Jesus when I was in college. And so I, we would sing that, that song at Breakaway at A&M. And um, yeah, and we were at Breakaway at A&M and we would sing that song, but in my heart and in my mind, I would feel guilty. Because in my heart, I knew that probably what I should have been singing is, I surrender all but that one thing. I, I surrender all, God, but that one thing. And here's the thing I want you to know. That Peter, when he writes this, and I don't think this is by accident. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired word of the Lord that is true and it is without flaw. And he writes us and he says, hey, I want you to know that this is your response to the fact that Jesus shed his blood for you. This is your response to the fact that, that a holy God came to this earth and lived in perfect obedience and then died so that you could have life. The response is, is that we are to surrender all. That we're to literally take every aspect of our lives and lay it down and say, God, I am willing and I'm gonna set this apart for you for the singular purpose of glorifying God. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm thankful that Peter doesn't just drop that on us. And so you gotta be holy in all your behavior. Because I'm gonna little, give you a little hint to the end of the message here, is that it's impossible for you to be holy in all your behavior. And, and until the day that Jesus Christ comes back, you're never gonna be perfectly holy. First uh, John says that he who says he is without sin, the truth's not in him. And so, and they're always gonna be this battle inside of us for holiness, but, but the call nonetheless is for us to be holy in all our behavior. And, and, and Peter in this first verse here, verse 14, he actually gives us a clue. He actually gives us an idea on how you and I can move towards that end. And let's read it together one more time. Because he kind of shows us here. You got to dig deep, but it's in there. First Peter chapter one, verse 14. <clears throat> he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. There, there, there's a key there. There's some how-tos in that language on how you and I can pursue to be set apart in all our behavior. Let's look at the first part there. He says, as obedient children. Now, I want you to hang with me real quick because this is big. There's a better way to translate that. There's a, literally in the Greek, literally in the Greek, it doesn't say as obedient children, but it literally says as the children of obedience. He's writing these people and he says, as the children of obedience. In other words, he doesn't take, um, he doesn't call us children like children of God and then use the adjective and say we're children of God but we're obedient. He actually uses that phrase like a title. He's like, hey, I'm writing to you the children of 
obedience. The children of obedience. Now listen carefully. He does that. He calls this that. We can make up t-shirts. The children of obedience. It's our title as Christians. And he does that for this reason. It's, it's, it's specific. It, there's a purpose to it. The reason that he's doing it, listen, is he's trying to remind them that holiness is not necessarily and primarily something that you go and do. But if that you are in Christ Jesus, holiness is something that you already are. Now let that sink in. Being obedient to God is not something necessarily that you go out there and do, but he's trying to remind them it is now your identity. You are a holy one. You are a child of obedience, and therefore being obedient to God is something that's an overflow of, of, of someone that you already are. His whole point is this, to put it simply. He's saying that in Christ Jesus, you've been given a brand new identity. And this is crucial. Hang with me through this whole point. This is a big aha moment for me in my walk with Jesus. He's saying that the day that you got saved, you got a brand new name. It's, it's the child of obedience. The day that you got saved, you received a brand new nature. The day that you got saved, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. The day that you got saved, the Holy Spirit was literally placed inside of you. You have a new nature that is in you. And so now your identity is no longer a son or daughter of disobedience, as Paul says in Colossians, but now you are literally a son or daughter of obedience. It's who you are now. You're a brand new person. It's your identity. Now listen to this. Don't turn there. Colossians chapter three, verse five. Paul talks about this, about this new identity we have. He says, put to death, strong language. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. That's idolatry, he says. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, he goes, and then these you, rather, two once walked when you were living in them. <clears throat> so he's talking about these sins as kind of this past identity. He goes, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now look at verse 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of creator. He says, you have an old identity, you've got an old nature, you've got an old man, and it's got practices, but now in Christ Jesus, you have a new self. You have a new man, you have a new identity, and it's being renewed to look like the person of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I want you to hear why this matters. Do not miss this right here. Here's why this matters in helping us walk in holiness and actually going out there and choosing to obey Jesus. Here's the answer. Because you have a new nature, because you have a new nature, because you were made a new creation, because you have the Holy Spirit in, inside of you, now that you are a new creation, you have to remember that that new creation inside of you has new passions, that that new creation inside of you, that that new nature inside of you has new desires. And church, do you know what the number one passion 
and the number one desire of your new nature is. It's in every believer in the room right now. Do you know what it is? It's got a passion. It's got a desire. You know what it is? It's holiness. The day you got saved, you were given the Holy Spirit, you were given a new nature, and there is nothing in the world that the Holy Spirit that lives in you wants more than to glorify God and obey him in every single solitary thing that you do. There is nothing that makes the Holy Spirit inside of you want to jump for joy more than when you obey God in every single thing that you do. And so you ask the question, okay, Matt, I got saved, received the Holy Spirit. I now have a new nature. I'm now a new creation that has new desires and new passions to be holy and glorify God. I get that. Then why do I still sin? If I've got this new nature that wants more than anything in the world to be holy in all my behavior, then why in the world is there parts of me that still wants to sin? Well, the answer to the question is pretty simple, is that what is our new nature wrapped up in? It's wrapped up in flesh. It's this stuff right here. And what do we know biblically about our flesh? And what do we know experientially about our flesh? Our flesh is sinful. Our flesh is dirty. It wants to do all kinds of dirty stuff. Our flesh has desires of its own. You know this. It has a desire for approval, wrongful approval. It has a desire for pleasure. Our flesh has a desire for power. Our flesh has a desire for control. It's got all these desires. And that's why Peter, in 1 Peter 1.14, listen, after he calls us obedient children, after he says, you are the children of obedience, saying you've got this new nature, watch what he says. He says, do not be conformed. Do not be shaped by the former lust. Do not be shaped by the former desires, this longing for approval and pleasure and comfort and power and control, all right? And he's saying this, this is his point. He's saying the reason we still sin, even though we have a new nature, is because right now there is a battle inside of every single believer. There is a war, actually, going on in the heart and the mind of every single believer in this room between the desires of your old nature and the desires of your new nature. As a matter of fact, that is one of the defining marks of a believer is that you sense a battle in you. If you don't sense a battle between your new natures, it's probably because you only got one nature and it's probably not the new one because we're still made of flesh. Now, let's read what Paul says, because Paul actually talks about this battle between the, his new nature and his new desires and the old nature and its desires. Romans chapter seven, verse 18. Let me read it for you really quickly. In uh, um, 7 of 18, he says, Paul says, and this is, by the way, one of the best Christians that's ever walked the planet. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You see that? He goes, I have a desire in me to glorify God. There's something inside of me that wants to be holy, but I've got this flesh. And so I'm struggling to carry it out. He goes on in verse 19, he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who does it, but the sin who dwells in me. And so he's basically saying that my true identity is this new nature. My real identity is this nature that loves and wants to serve God, but I'm still got this stupid body of flesh on. It keeps making me want to do what I don't want to do. In verse 22, or where there in verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. 
He's saying, every time I, I have this desire to obey God, I want to do what's right, then, then my flesh is like right there saying, don't do it, don't do it. And then he goes on and he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It's one of the primary indicators that you're saved, that you have a new nature, and it delights in the law of God, and it's inside of you. And then verse 23, he says, but I see a different, I see in my members another law. My members, that's his body. In my members, I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's saying, look, there's a battle that's going on in every one of us who's been saved between our old nature and its desires and our new nature and it's ours. Now listen, here's the thing. This is the key right here. This is the key to us actually seeing movement towards holiness in our lives. What Peter is saying, that's kind of the key to holiness, is that because you have a new identity, because you have a new nature, and because that new nature has new desires and new passions, when you actually walk in holiness, when you come to a crossroads and we actually have the choice to, desire, you know, to satisfy the desires of the, of the old nature or you have a choice to satisfy the desires of the new nature and you make the decision, I am going to obey God, what you are doing is, yes, you are denying the passions of your flesh, but what we often forget is in that very same moment, we are satisfying the passions of our new nature. We're denying what what our flesh wants, but we are satisfying what our spirit wants. And here's the point. Church, this is why this is such a big deal because what this is saying, what I'm trying to teach you here is that as a Christian, as an actual saved person, holiness is never opposed to your happiness. As a Christian, holiness is never, ever opposed to your happiness. We have a bad habit of thinking that if I say no to the desires of my flesh right here, I'm missing out on something. If I, if I obey God in this moment, temptation comes, if I obey God, then I am missing out on something. And what, what Peter's trying to teach us, and what the Bible is saying over and over again is that could not be farther from the truth. Because, again, the moment you deny the desires of your old nature, you are instantly satisfying the desires of your new nature that absolutely loves more than anything in the world to glorify God. And so for the Christian, I got really good news, but bad news for you is you're never gonna enjoy sin again for long. You got a new nature. Happiness, real genuine happiness for the Christian can never, ever, ever be found in satisfying the desires of your flesh. Now as a believer, the key to holiness is is walking through life realizing I'm only gonna find real contentment, real peace, real happiness in one single solitary place and that is saying no to these desires but satisfying the new ones that are inside of me because of the Holy Spirit of God. And I look back at my life and I'm telling you folks, 43 years old, been walking with Jesus a long time. so true. The times in my life where I have been the most miserable, I'm talking about the most miserable, and I can pinpoint them. It's been the times in my life where I was walking in unrepentant sin. I am a Christian. I've tried to run from God, I can't do it, but I have a new nature. I, I have the Holy Spirit 
He is in me and he loves exalting Jesus. And so the most miserable I have ever been is when I'm ignoring my new nature, when I am not satisfying the desires of a new nature and I run after satisfying the desires of the old nature. And here, you know the reason I'm miserable? You know why for the Christian, sinning is a big, fat, monumental waste of time? Because you can never, ever, ever, as a real Christian, you can never really enjoy sin anymore because you got the pesky Holy Spirit inside of you and you can't really enjoy the Holy Spirit because you keep on sinning. And so the way to actually get to a place where you are walking in contentment and happiness and holiness is when you say no to the flesh and you say yes to the new nature. And the Holy Spirit rejoices and brings a, a peace and a holiness and a happiness that you can't find anywhere else. I look back at the times of my life I've been the happiest. It's when I've been satisfying the desires of the new nature. I think about cancer. At 31, I got cancer. And we went through a several month period. I thought I was gonna die. And I'm gonna give y'all, y'all, a lot of y'all are young, so I'm gonna give you a little foreshadow of what it's like when you think you're dying. You don't wanna sin when you think you're dying. When you think you're about to see Jesus, it's pretty easy to say no to sin. I'm just giving you a little shot, a little, little foreshadow here. And so, man, I was holy. <laughs> I mean, I was holy. And I just want you to understand something. I, I woke up one day, and I, I don't know if I'm ever going to die. But I've been holy. And there was a peace there. And there was a contentment in my life. And there was a happiness in my life that transcended any circumstance that I was walking through. And see, this is what, I think this is probably what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he said this, just real quick, we're almost done, hang with me. He says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. He's like, if, if, you're, if you're saying holiness is dull, you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. He says, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. It's the truth. G.K. Uh, Chesterton, he said this, he said, genuine Christianity, real Christianity, walking in holiness kind of Christianity has not been tried and found wanting, but it's been found difficult and left untried. What Peter's saying and what both these men are saying is, look, there is a level of happiness that the believer can experience. There's a level of peace that the believer can have. There's a level of contentment that the believer can experience, but it's only found in one place, and that is on the other side of obedience to God. Okay, now, again, I wanna be real clear here. You're never, I'm never gonna be completely holy until the day that Jesus comes back. We get our new bodies. Okay, we're always gonna have that wrestling between the old nature and the new and that's why Paul, at the end of Romans 7, when he's like, hey, I can't stop doing what I don't want to do, and there's the things I want to do, but I, I'm not doing them. And at the end of it, he kind of shouts out. He's like, Who's, who can save me from this body of sin and death? And he says, thanks be to God, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying that there's one that came to this earth and he actually walked in perfect obedience. His name is Jesus and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for all our disobedience. And because of that, we are now children of obedience. And though we will never be completely holy, our response to that salvation is we live every day of our lives. 
We let the pursuit of our hearts until the day where we take our last breath be God, I am going to pursue setting apart my life for the singular purpose of glorifying you. And so I wonder today, I wonder today how many of us in this room, just like the the old guy in the movie illustration, I wonder how many of us maybe need to go back to the place where our Savior died. That we need to go back to the cross where Jesus paid it all and just ask this simple question. Am I a good man? Am I a good woman? Maybe you've just been going through the motions but you've never thought about how unbelievable it is that Jesus saved you. And you need to go back to the cross today and look him square in the eye and say, Lord, am I living a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that you made for me? Ask him to change you. Ask him not just give you a heart for obedience, but ask him to give you the ability to do it. We're gonna sing a song here in just a second and it's gonna be a song of surrender. It's gonna be one of those songs where where you're saying those words, I abandon all of my heart to you. Gold and silver, Lord, you, you you can have it all because all I need today is you. The only way that ever really starts getting played out is if God does a great work in your heart. And so let's ask him, let those words be our prayers today and let him change us. All right, let's pray together. And I want you to do that. I want you to take a second, believer, and go back to the cross. And let the Holy Spirit reveal to you if there are arenas in your life, places in your life where you are saying yes to the desires of the flesh and saying no to the desires of your new nature. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For as children of obedience, do not be conformed any longer to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called your name, be holy in all your behavior. Father, we pray that you would do that in us and we ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.